Hello and welcome to this week's Epochs, which will be a solo effort by me, uh, where I'm going to be talking all about the road to Pearl Harbor. Um, when I realised I knew I was going to be doing a, a solo effort with a sort of a one-off subject, I was in two minds whether to do the Battle of Jutland, which I will do, I promise I will do at some point. Uh, but the, out of the two, I have the Battle of Jutland or the road to Pearl Harbor, and I decided to do this one. It's something I've been interested in for quite a long while. For the last two years or so, I've been reading heavily all about the war in the Pacific. I plan to, for my own channel, History Bro, do check that out on YouTube. Again, that's History Bro. Um, like and subscribe. I'm going to do a series, I've been promising to for a couple of years now, all about the war in the Pacific. But obviously it's such a massive topic. You have to sort of pick and choose. You can't do it all, even with many, many, many hours at your disposal. So when I do get finally get round to that on History Bro, it's going to be based heavily around the figure of Tojo, Hideki Tojo, the razor, um, who was the prime minister, Japanese prime minister, during the war up until 1944, I think eventually he was booted out. Anyway, in my readings all around the topic, um, I've basically gone back and sort of delved into sort of all of Japanese history, essentially. Um, and one of the topics, one of the areas, one of the themes I found most fascinating is the run-up to Pearl Harbor. Everyone knows, everyone probably should know, I know my audience of, of epochs are very knowledgeable. We all know that on December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy, as FDR said, we all know that that was obviously one of the great turning points of world history, certainly of World War II history. It was a, a great, in a bad way, a great moment in time. You know, history hinges on such things, um, such a sneak attack, in inverted commas. And I'll talk all about that at the very end. To what extent was it a, a sneak attack? Did the Americans know, or FDR know, and allow it to happen? I'll talk about all of that at the end. So in this, in this epoch, I won't talk about really the day or the, the, the actual bombing on December 7th. I'll sort of get you right up to that point and end it there. What I want to talk about and discuss is how we got there. Now that, of course, in and of itself, is a, is a giant topic. Um, to do it full justice, what I want to do is go back, talk briefly about Japanese history in the uh, 100 or more years before 1941. Um, and the closer I get to December 7th, 41, start going into more and more detail. So I really want to try and do the topic justice. And even given an hour or two, however long this ends up taking, still won't really do it justice. And there'll be lots of people out there annoyed that I didn't mention X, Y, Z things. Um, so where to start it? I often say this, don't I? Where to start such a big story, biting off such a big chunk? Um, first of all, then, I think a, a decent place to start would be the Medjai Restoration. So I want to do all this from the Japanese perspective as well, not necessarily from the European or the American perspective, but from the Japanese perspective. What were they thinking? You know, what were their thought processes? Where were they? Where was their headspace in all of this? And um, so before I start on the Meiji Restoration and all that sort of thing, 
I do want to briefly say at the beginning that the Japanese knew that going to war with the United States in the 1940s was a long shot. They knew they were outgunned, essentially, by America in terms of just industrial output. They knew that America was a type of sleeping tiger. And their only real shot at victory was, you know, a sucker punch to begin with, to even give them a hope. Um, the idea is if they could bomb Pearl Harbor and get a lot of the US battleships and cruisers and things, or even aircraft carriers, even that, had it been a lot more successful than it really was, even then, it was only really to buy them a couple of years, maybe, um, in order to consolidate all their other territorial gains in the Pacific, to give them a shot at a later giant naval standoff, if America brought over its Atlantic fleet into the Pacific, and then maybe the Japanese would have a shot at actually beating the US in, in, in an all-out Navy-on-Navy engage, engagements. So even with that sucker punch of Pearl Harbor, it was still going to be a long shot. And they knew it. Everyone knew it. Everyone knew it. There was no doubt in anyone's mind. It's like, you know, if I fight Big Dave Batista or Eddie Hall or someone, I'm not going to beat him unless I smack him in the back of the head with a baseball bat when he's not looking. And even then, I need to knock him clean out in that first blow. You know. <laughs> so everyone knew. Um, the other thing is, another thing just to say before I get stuck in, the idea that it was a complete sneak attack. Well, no. As soon as America moved its Pacific fleet from California, from the west coast of the United States, out to Pearl in Hawaii, if anyone doesn't know, Pearl Harbor is, is in Hawaii, or Hawaii, I've realised you should pronounce it. I might still just say Hawaii, though, because I'm gauche like that. Um, as soon as America did that in 1940, um, everyone knew, it was plain to everyone, obviously, of course, the Japanese, that that's a, a key target then, now, at that point. Of course, the Japanese Navy uh, are watching that, got their eye on that. It's not a secret to anyone. Right, we'll get into all the details of exactly how all that played out um, at the end. All right, so to set the story up, Japan had famously, for centuries, since the, the medieval period or since the ancient times, had been quite a closed society, shall we say. Well, very much so. Not quite as much as Korea, perhaps. Or people would termed Korea a, a hermit kingdom. <clears throat> the Koreans really didn't want any intervention from European powers. And the Japanese were largely the same. Um, when the Spanish and the Portuguese first got there in sort of the 16th century, would it have been late 15th into the 16th century, um, the Japanese had always been fairly suspicious of, of Catholicism and Spanish and Portuguese intentions towards Japan always been quite suspicious of that, and later the British. Um, so they decided, and a lot of this stuff in the early part of this epoch is going to be fairly broad strokes of the brush, uh, so forgive me for that. I haven't got time to go into really hundreds of years worth of Japanese history. The Japanese decided that they would have some 
connection with the outside world or with the European world. And they chose the Dutch. To this day, the Japanese have got quite a close, close uh, connection, a soft spot for the Dutch. Because they chose in the 18th century to have a small enclave of Dutch people, sort of semi-permanent enclave of the Dutch in Japan, and that they wouldn't really deal with anyone else. If they needed any sort of connection to Europe, it'd all just be done through their Dutch connections. A bit later on, by the 19th century, um, it becomes clear they'd sort of backed the wrong horse, really, because Britain, Spain and Portugal had, had declined hugely, and the Dutch also were no longer a first-rate maritime power. Um, they would have been better off going on, going with the British. But anyway, they stuck with the Dutch. Um, until an event happened in 1853. In 1853, one specific day in 1853, or is it the, the 8th of July, in fact, 1853, um, the day when the black ships arrived in Edo Bay, Tokyo Bay. Edo is Tokyo. Tokyo used to be called Edo. <laughs> and some black ships turned up. Four black ships. What was it? There was the Mississippi, the Plymouth, the Saratoga, and uh, another ship would be difficult for me to pronounce. The Susquehanna. Four US steamers, warships really, big steamers. At that point in the 1850s, one of the best ships you could have, They're these big sort of paddle, paddle boat steamer type things. Bit of a moment in time in maritime design. Um, they turned up under the command of, uh, of Chandler from Friends, Matt Perry. Sorry, of course I'm joking, but it was a Commodore Matt Perry, Matthew Perry, uh, before the real Chandler uh, sues me for defamation, accusing him of attacking Japan. There's two Matt Perrys in history, Chandler and Commodore Matthew Perry. Anyway, on this day in 1853, he sails into Tokyo Bay. And where the Japanese say, you know, we're a closed nation here. You can't, you can't just do that. Um, you know, get gone. Be gone with you. If anything, there's another bay somewhere else in Japan. You can, we'll allow you to anchor there for a while until you get lost. But... Certainly, you can't just sail into Tokyo Bay. What do you think you're doing? But Matt Perry, Commodore Matthew Perry, says, uh, how about no? How about my ships can outgun your, any navy you want to send against me? No, I'm not leaving. It, this is gunboat diplomacy, so-called. Um, no, there's actually nothing you can do, Japan, to force me out of this bay right here, right now. Um, do your worst. Um, you literally can't damage me. My, these four ships I've got uh, can outgun everything you've got. Because at that point in 1853, Japan was sort of basically non-industrialised. Um, it was still operating in a sort of, well, a, a feudal way. It was, there wasn't hardly any industrialization had happened. Um, because there'd been, you know, something approaching a hermit kingdom. Uh, well, not kingdom, they had an, an emperor. So, just to talk about the Japanese set up their politics, their society, briefly. Um, 
they'd had emperors going back to sort of the 6th or 7th century BC. Uh, a few different dynasties, but you can kind of say there's an unbroken line of emperors going back that far. A lot of that is sort of semi-mythical, lost in the mists of time. But at least by sort of the 6th century AD, you know, sort of firmly, fairly firmly in the full light of history, uh, Japan had had emperors up to this day. They even survived. Hirohito survived World War II and his family line did. So to this day, Japan has still got an emperor, but, but not, a, a, not a true, not an emperor that controls all policy. Or sometimes it was, sometimes it wasn't. Over the centuries, it would ebb and flow. But quite often, most of the time, really, again, this is quite low resolution. Most of the time, the emperors of Japan were sort of largely ceremonial. Well, they were in charge of sort of the spiritual side of, of, of Japanese culture and society. And quite often the actual business of government, the actual policy making men, were often not the emperor. Sometimes they were, again, just to stress that, sometimes they were. Um, but for hundreds of years, Japan had had a sort of system where they would have shoguns, basically sort of military rulers, the shoguns, um, who were completely loyal to, or at least on paper, the emperor. Uh, but they really controlled policy. The, 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 the cockpit of power, if you like, was really with the shoguns more often than not. And under them, um, the various layers, various strata of sort of underlords, um, and then the, the warrior class of the samurai, and under them peasants and merchants and things. By 1853, uh, they still had shoguns. There's an emperor, um, but the shoguns really controlled things. It was the Tokugawa shogunate at that point. And the, the shoguns would fight amongst each other, have all sorts of effectively civil wars amongst all different types of shoguns. And, um, and so by this point, there's a Tokugawa shogunate. And when Admiral Matthew Perry turns up, they're sort of just completely unable to defeat him in any way. And so history says that Commodore Matthew Perry turning up with his black ships in 1853 basically destroyed the Tokugawa shogunate. And it did, but not immediately. It's sort of not immediately. They still went on for quite a few years, another 10 years or so, before the Tokugawa shogunate was sort of completely, essentially done away with. Because when Matthew Perry turns up, he shows them, he shows them sort of um, modern revolvers. Uh, he shows them their cannon. He gives them one of his cannon. Um, and he shows them all sorts of modern tricks, things like uh, all sorts of electronic devices, cutting edge for the 1850s sort of stuff. Um, he brings them whiskey, he gives them lots of gifts, basically. And it sort of, on some level, blows their mind, the Japanese. They sort of, they come to terms with, they realise, oh, we're sort of losing the game, you know, the greater game of 
of research and development is a modern phrase, but you know, industrialization, we've sort of, we're way behind, we're behind the curve here. And they sort of realize it and take it on board. Now that's happened lo lots of times in history, many, many times, much more advanced culture or civilization makes contact with a much more primitive one. And usually the more advanced civilization is sort of so far ahead that the people, peoples that are lagging behind have got no real hope, no real chance of catching up, um, you know, in, in their own right. But the Japanese decide they are going to, or at least try to, and they, they do largely succeed. Um, so after Commodore Matthew Perry sort of puts Japan on notice, really, um, the great powers, the great oligarchs, we might want to call, might want to call them, or um, the great power brokers, um, the great magnates of Japan. There's sort of internal strife. This plays out over many years, really. There's internal strife, and they decide that what they're going to do is, um, and this is very low resolution, so forgive me, um, essentially topple or do away with the sort of the shogun system and they need they want a more a completely sort of centralized power base so they decide we'll make the emperor sort of all powerful or not all powerful but at least put him fairly firmly if if not still nominally in head of uh, at the head <clears throat> of the entire japanese government and country they will still largely pull all the strings these magnates these oligarchs um, but we'll have one sort of undisputed centralized leader. <clears throat> I mean, the emperor uh, and it's the Magi, the Magi emperor. So it's called the Magi restoration. They're restoring the power of, of the emperor to all sorts of degrees. The Magi emperor. Okay. So he seems to have been happy with that, gone along with it, and he had a fairly long reign. And over the next decades, that's exactly what Japan decide to do. They're going to catch up with the West. Um, they're going to industrialize. They're going to build lots. They get lots of advisors and engineers and things from Europe and the United States. And they're going to start building canals. They're going to start building railways. They're going to sort of start building lots of factories, everything you need, industry. They're going to start precision engineering their own rifles and cannons and building state-of-the-art warships and things. So that's what Japan do. They decide to industrialize. They'll start doing all the things that, in, that the industrialized nations had already gone through. So it starts with building factories, um, building canals, building railways. Railways is a big one. You have to connect up all your big cities, all your sort of centers of commerce and industry, connect them up and um, start, a, start a real developed economy going. Start using fiat currency. So then Japan had sort of measured wealth in terms of land, in terms of rice yields and things. They were really quite feudal even into the 19th century. Um, so they sort of start a very rapid industrialization program of, of getting themselves up to date. Particularly their armed forces. Um, 
they decide that they're going to try and have a, a modern army, modern in the 19th century sense. They, they quite often modelled it on R German or Prussian models. And they became closer with the British. They realised the British really had the best navy in the world. So they got lots of advisors and became diplomatically quite close with Britain. And they'll start uh, designing ships the way the British did and just get themselves up to speed as, as fast as they could. Now, lots of people in Japan didn't necessarily like that. Japan is, to this day, you know, very conservative with the small c. Very conservative, very traditional. So you can imagine lots of people in Japan thought that was disgusting, a disgusting path to take. Um, at odds with the heart and soul of Japan. It was very un-Japanese for their rulers to start sort of wearing Western-style suits and building battleships that look like US and British battleships or French battleships and to start fielding armies wearing uniforms that look like European uniforms and lining up with rifles the way the Europeans did. That's very un-Japanese. For example, there's the samurai class. So a quick word to say about the samurai. Even by the 19th century, they'd largely changed since the true sort of ancient or medieval samurai. There's the, the Bushido code. A lot could be said about that. One thing I'll say about it um, is it's quite difficult to get a, a handle on, to put your finger on exactly what Bushido is. A, bit, a little bit like European chivalry. Some people say the Bushido code or the samurai code is something akin to chivalry, but most people say they're not the same at all. But they are the same in the sense that it's quite difficult to define. You know, some people would define chivalry, whatever that means, you know, very differently to others. Same with Bushido. It depends where you are, different places in Japan at, at different centuries would define Bushido very differently. But I suppose in a nutshell, and you can only hope to be low resolution with this, but it's the idea that you're prepared to die for your honour, that you're prepared to die at a moment's notice um, for your lord or for the sake of honour. That's one of the things anyway. That's what the samurai, a uh, big part of what they're about, you know, a professional warrior class. They don't do anything else, a bit like um, the Spartans. They don't do any mercantile, they don't do any, um, uh, the, the, the work of merchants or peasants or working in the field, they are 100% dedicated to sort of martial pursuits. But by the 19th century and after the Meiji Restoration, there's a decision to be made that well, they're going to, Japan's going to sort of largely do away with the samurai. So if you're not allowed to dress as a traditional samurai, um, largely do away with the old samurai swords. Um, and the, but but the, the, the concept of Bushido, the concept of being a samurai, what's left of it, because you can't just wipe it out entirely, it's too ingrained, um, is move that into sort of the officer class for the army. You know, if, you're, if your family is sort of a samurai family, you, your family have been samurai for centuries or something, um, you just sort of become the officer class, more expected to join, join the army. You can do it that way. But that's a big change. That's a big societal change, massive, really. 
And a lot of people just wouldn't have it. And so there were all sorts of civil unrest, even civil wars. There's a big thing in 1877, the Satsuma Rebellion, where sort of, you know, whole oligarchs, magnates, shoguns, what used to be, would have used to have been called shoguns, just would not have it that the samurais were to be completely morphed and reformed and changed and largely, largely stamped out in a sense. Whole segments of society wouldn't have that and, and were prepared to, you know, have a type of civil war, large-scale civil conflict over exactly that. But the state, the Magi Emperor, was able to defeat the Satsuma Rebellion, you know, send 20,000 regulars armed modern soldiers drilled to go and put down the last remnants of the samurai that happened in 1877 the satsuma rebellion so um fair bit of civil unrest it's not easy just to go from a sort of a fairly medieval feudalistic type system to a modern industrialized state you're going to have growing pains there um so anyway there's many, many books written about all this sort of thing, but I shall have to move on. Um, it wasn't until 1889 that there was a full constitution was written and ratified and agreed upon in Japan. So, you know, let's see, you can see there that if, if Matt Perry turns up in 1853, and it's not till 1889 that it's all sort of formalized, this, this, this process of Japan becoming a lot more westernized for want of a better term of of doing whatever it takes to get up to speed with the great powers the great powers being you know the united states britain france germany these countries so it's a process it took many 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 decades but by 1889 they have they make this themselves a constitution they have you know multiple parties they have a, a what they call a diet which is, you know, like a, a type of Congress or Parliament, whatever you want to call it, with an upper and a lower house. And the emperor sits at the top as sort of an undisputed head of state. But the business of government will be done by people other than him. Um, so a quick word then on the, the Magi constitution. Although it looks like a Western constitution in all sorts of ways, and it is obviously completely modelled on on, well, British and American systems. Um, they also built a, quite a few things into it so that if, <clears throat> if the process of democratization went too far, they could put the brakes on it. So in other words, the emperor could sort of veto anything he wanted whenever he wanted. So, you know, if things sort of got out, out of control, you know, if communists or socialists started trying to take over and, you know, do a revolution or something, then all that could be stopped. And one of the main things they did was that they made it so that the army and the navy would be completely independent of this civilian control, that they would be loyal only to the emperor. And where the emperor is quite often closeted in his palace or palaces, not necessarily or quite often very explicitly, deliberately not at the heart of power. Um, it meant that the army and the navy um, could potentially end up being a law unto themselves, that the civilian governments couldn't control them, 
And then so if the emperor couldn't or decided not to, then they're sort of a law unto themselves. Well, that ended up happening. Anyone that knows this story, that kind of is exactly what ended up happening. The rise of militarism in Japan towards the end of the 19th century and through the first half or the first bit of the, of the 20th century up to the 1940s. Now, I suppose you can say that process culminates with admirals and generals actually being all the main ministers in government. And you can say that that process is sort of typified by Hideki Tojo becoming the prime minister because Tojo was a military man through and through, you know, absolutely 100%. Now, Tojo wasn't the first military man to be at the head of, of government. Um, but by that point, the process is almost absolutely complete. One thing to mention is Tojo doesn't become prime minister until 1940. So, you know, pretty close to Pearl Harbor, which is December 41. But long before that, and I'll go through this in a moment, but long before that, the military had had sort of de facto complete control um, or de jure complete control in all sorts of ways. Um, so one of the next thing to mention on this, this whirlwind tour of Japan's fortunes running up to World War II, one of the big things to mention is their growing animosity towards the United States, because it didn't come out of nowhere. Pearl Harbor didn't come out of nowhere. That suddenly Japan picks a fight with the United States. The United States hadn't done anything wrong and we thought we were best friends and why have you stabbed us in the back like this? I thought we were all on the same page. No, 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 no. There'd been antagonism between Japan and the United States going back a long time, decades and decades and decades. It's during the, towards the very end really, very end, of the 19th century, that both Japan and the United States sort of start making a rush for true, for want of a better word, colonial control of the Pacific. 